Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're a shallow, talkative, empty-headed ne'er-do-well. And to remain silent would destroy you. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I've been working on a paper. I'm at the point where I'm supposed to address some objections that I anticipate getting, kind of fussy objections. <laughs> What's the scholarly equivalent of the wanking motion? <laughs> I can see these objections about how I'm like conflating two different concepts, like agent regret and remorse. And I just I, need that, you know, <laughs> that thing that you can put in the paper that's just... Like, they should have off. animated GIFs, like, yeah. in, in at least, like, PDF should support, like, a jerking off. You know, um, I don't know what the right answer is uh, to that, but it might be something like the footnote that we have. I'm David Pissar from Cornell University. It might be something like one of the footnotes in the article that we're reading today, which is The Totalitarian Ego by Anthony Greenwald. Um, Great. The reader is asked to accept without further laboring of the argument <laughs> that organization with a knowledge system facilitates blah, 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 blah. The argument might be made in rigorous fashion, but that is beyond the scope of this article. I love that. <laughs> he was just like, jerking off. Yeah. When he says beyond the scope of this article, he means like beneath my <laughs> right. as a human That's being. right. Don't be stupid. <laughs> You know it's true. So just shut the fuck up is essentially what that footnote is. That, no, that is great. Um, I, I so highlighted wait, I, that too. I love that. Yeah. I took notes. Uh, I love the passive voice. It's yeah. the reader is asked. I, yeah. You know, I don't. I'm not asking you. It's just you're just being asked by some nebulous sort of like reasonable, like the the rational person. Yeah. <laughs> Today we are continuing our series where one of us suggests either a classic philosophy paper or a classic psychology paper, and Dave selected for today the totalitarian ego. Can, we're only doing we're only doing papers about totalitarianism. <laughs> <I know. laughs> there has to be some connection to totalitarianism, <laughs> or else we're not doing it. But this is a fantastic paper um, that we'll talk about in one second. Before we do, um, we want to thank everybody who contacts us through all the various ways that you can. You can like us on Facebook. You can tweet us at Very Bad Wizards, at Tamler, at Pease. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com, and rate us on iTunes. Oh, you know, I wanted to do that. I, maybe we'll do that next time. I wanted to read just some of the last 
reviews that we've gotten because they've been really funny just like and really (laughs) they have they've been really nice yeah Yeah, they actually make my day when i'm when i'm feeling blue yeah all i have to do so here's a couple very recent one from rob to the ryan born breast milk fruity pebbles cheerios bible (laughs) et meatloaf dorothy sex 16 candles geography soccer kerouac wine selfish gene multi-grain cheerios Unagi, Kubrick, Bowie, Very Bad Wizards, Death. <laughs> <laughs> That's poetry. That yeah. is that is poetry. And I'm honored to be in that category of things, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe not Fruity Pebbles, although, you know. That was, hey, man. And I don't know what Unagi. Do you know what that is? No. <laughs> Here's another one that I love. Although it seems like. It would be repugnant to listen to a drunk that makes love to his dog chat with a Kantian philosopher. <laughs> I like that you're the Kantian philosopher. I, <laughs> I have a justified true belief that this VBW has all the sufficient and necessary attributes of a five-star podcast. That's so great. <laughs> uh, and then just some really nice ones that I won't read because I, I, I'm uncomfortable with praise with heaping praise upon yourself yeah Yeah. so you'd rather self-abuse good old-fashioned self-abuse yeah self-abuse is the way to go the other way you can make us happy is by supporting us either by clicking the link at amazon (sighs) or by sending us a donation on paypal Um, and you can do both of those things at verybatwizards.com slash support. Click on that Amazon link before you shop and consider sending us a donation because we really appreciate it. We work hard on this and we do have some overhead as well. Thanks for all the support. Uh, I wanted to quickly read this one, um, this this sentence. Tamler and Dave have a chemistry like Paul and John that makes me want to listen even if I'm not super familiar with the topic at hand. I called dibs on being John. <laughs> Do not. That's fine. You could be married to Yoko Ono. <laughs> uh, and dead. <laughs> Do you think that uh, that he was referring to Paul Bloom and John Haidt? <laughs> <laughs> they do have wonderful chemistry, those two. Um, we got a couple. I, I think we sounded like we were friends in the last one, too, because we got a yeah. couple like tweets about that. Um, yeah, somebody asked, are you guys best friends in real life and i restrained myself from saying no we hate each other because i thought it would be misinterpreted i mean i think that people like the the thought that, that turns <laughs> we, out not to be true that, that we're actually good friends no we actually we are good friends we talk to each other all the time and we're uh, about very personal matters sometimes but yeah. we've we've literally met in person something like four times right yeah yeah it's bizarre That's right. Uh, it is. We gotta. We gotta do um, a very bad wizards meetup of some sort. Hopefully it's like it's you've not. got mail. <laughs> I haven't seen you've got mail. So it's what I imagine you've got mail. <laughs> it's it like a shitty rom com. <laughs> exactly. um, um, so I had a few a few of our listeners uh, approach me at this conference, and it just felt felt great. Some compliments just feel really great, and the biggest compliment I think of recent is that people saying that we we were the ones who introduced them to mr robot (laughs) yeah i love those too because those are the things that i appreciate the most when somebody introduces me to Mm -hmm. some sort of work of art that i didn't know about before yeah you know know, one of the uh, yeah and one somebody tweeted out thanks for introducing him to the comics of 
um, Brubaker, who is one of my favorite comic writers, and and said that he had never read comics before that. You introduced him to a whole genre, a whole whole way of living. (laughs) I never really considered being a nerd before, but thank you. (laughs) I've ruined his life. Oh, you know, last thing I wanted to say really quickly was one of my friends um, who is just almost, you know, do you know how Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his own land? Sometimes I feel this way, like I don't get respect, the respect that I deserve from my own friends in the field. Yeah. Um, so one of my friends, Kathleen Vaz, uh, she's, you may know her from such publications as Schooler and Vaz, um, yes. told me that she'd actually bothered to listen to a couple of our episodes. Uh-huh. And this is what she had to say. You know how somebody said that you guys, uh, one of you sounds like you have a tampon stuck in your throat? Yeah. She said, David, that was definitely you. <laughs> your, your, voice cut, your, your voice is weird. I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah. How'd that replication go? <laughs> Burn, Kathleen. Uh, All right, so let's. Is dive there into- any scenario where saying "oh snap" is could possibly be anything but just lame? Like if you're saying it ironically, saying it non-ironically, there's really no context that that would be acceptable to say. So, are you including like any version of that, like "burn"? No, like sick burn, I think, oh, yeah. you know, that's something Eliza says. She says it kind of <laughs> ironically, but it's kind of funny, you know. Kids these days do everything ironically. It's I know. really, it's really like hard to keep up. Little miniature hipsters. <laughs> they really are. Um. <laughs> Did you watch Grease live? No. That went wait, wait. on. See, this what? is this is where being a divorcee, you know, comes in handy. <laughs> It was on in my house. I have a small house. and You enjoyed it. Don't lie. It could have been worse. I, I, I found out. I don't know if you're like this. I know the movie embarrassingly well. I know, I know it better than I really would care to admit. Than it's virtuous. I like John Travolta in um, Pulp Fiction a lot more. <laughs> yeah. But like there were parts of in the live show where I knew it was a departure from the movie and I uh, just shouldn't know that. You shouldn't. It's true. Yeah. It's like when I was we were at a club in um in at the conference and the Backstreet Boys came on and I knew the lyrics. <laughs> it was really fucking embarrassing. That, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that wouldn't happen to me. That, that, uh, you're above that. Well, I'm not above it. You realize as you get older that you're really not above anything. I think that's <laughs> the main lesson that you put on this earth to understand. Yes. To, to how to deal with shame. Yeah. Uh. All right. Um, that, um, speaking of, no, there's no good transition here. No, but, there's no, there's, there's, <laughs> this is really none. But let's talk about this great article from 1980 called The Totalitarian Ego by... Anthony Greenwald. Anthony T- Greenwald. Not Tony to be Greenwald. confused with Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, when people say he got Greenwalded, we don't mean Anthony. Yeah, we don't need Anthony. Um, this was a fantastic essay that I had not only not read, but never heard of. And I'm grateful for you that this was the thing that you assigned. Like, this makes me think this series is working out very well. Yeah. Um, No, I'm really glad I assigned this too, because I was almost made the mistake of assigning an article with actual data. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which I might do next time. (laughs) Shit. I was hoping you forgot about me having to read the results section. Yeah. I I assigned it. Um, 
with the memory that I had of the paper that that it was good and that it was big picture and that it was it really was prescient. But I hadn't I hadn't read it in a long time. Like I certainly didn't read it before telling you to read it. And so it really it really holds up. So maybe Talk, a, when you say big picture, this is seriously big picture. It, this is like I, Isaiah Berlin big picture, but the psychology version, as you sort of texted me, it's incredible the breadth of this paper and the way it tries to unify all these different domains into a single kind of vision. But why don't you give the sort of main yeah. rundown because you'll sound smarter talking. <laughs> than I well, here's a little track. background. So. I don't think I've ever had the chance to ch- chat actually with with Tony Greenwald, but I was aware of his work because Mazarin Banaji was a professor at Yale when I was in grad school, and I was very close with her students and and I consider her a mentor even though I didn't really work with her. But I remember when reading it in grad school, I was just I was like, wow, you know, this is it just scratched that itch for me, especially as a young grad student when you're at the stage where you're being forced to narrow, you're, you're really being told that big, big picture thinking is not for you, right? right. You, what you need to do is make that incremental, you know, finding that will let you have a publication in a good empirical journal and that you'll be able to talk about in your job talk. Purity judgments in three-year-olds, <laughs> something like that. That would be, that's too, way too broad even. Yeah. Um, so three-year-old Jews. How about that? <laughs> there. Well, Ashkenazi. And I was always actually, I had never really been able to talk in, in now in my memory. I'd never talked to Mazarin Banaji uh, about this paper. And I really wanted to know from, from him whether, how he felt about this paper. Um, because as Mazarin pointed out, we got some good feedback from Mazarin and then she introduced us Should to, we to talk about the paper first, though? Before, yeah, okay. Let's talk. Let's yeah. talk about the paper, and then I'll get to why I was curious about his thoughts now. But the paper is essentially central to the paper is this metaphor that the mind, the human social mind, or the just the human mind actually, is akin to a totalitarian regime. Using this metaphor and, and quotes from from um, George Orwell's 1984, he he takes it very. It's like a very, very serious metaphor. And really, it's there's two metaphors there. Uh, the totalitarian regime that, that controls all information and um, scientific paradigms, sort of of the Kuhnian sort and the Lakatos yeah. sort. And that just sort um, of sneaks up on you middle, midway through the paper. And I was like, exactly. holy shit, that's so cool. It, like, exactly. That was one of my favorite things about it is all of a sudden, like it was already – like you're already comparing just the way the the an individual mind works with totalitarian regimes and talk bringing in Hannah Arendt and and Orwell and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like oh and also like the way scientific theory construction and paradigms work it's an amazing synthesis of work that was just starting to go on right now it's like this work on on that had been slowly it was new and but slowly accumulating in a variety of domains showing that we have a set of biases that can be characterized as essentially the mind very, very selectively picking the information we remember, the information we pay attention to, the information we use, the judgments that we make, selectively picking the stuff that is good for us, forgetting things that, that, uh, forgetting bad things about ourselves, 
paying attention really to only self-relevant information and particularly self-relevant information that makes us think that we're good people really capturing the sort of bot like that in the Kunyan way that the way in which if you really really are pro a particular theory you ignore the evidence that goes against you um can we can we go through the different categories of biases that he's talking about yeah the way that the which they map on to a totalitarian political regime so the three biases that he talks about are egocentricity benefactance and conservatism egocentricity so what is that so that's it's the view that the self is more important than it probably really is that it's more central so what are the right. kinds of biases that he calls it sort of an ego as a self-focused historian like when you're when you're writing the history of what things that happened you can't help but write all of the stuff that was important to you and you pretty much tend to ignore the stuff that wasn't you're, important to you you're the central so, character of the drama exactly um and now again this is i think just an accepted view of the human mind um whether or not you adopt this totalitarian metaphor. So he talks about uh, you feel memory. like you're more in control, right? You're way more likely to see yourself as a causal force. Uh, he talks about these famous studies by Ellen Langer called on the illusion of control, right? You're way, way more likely to see that you were a causal force in whatever, especially good outcomes. But it's not always good um, because you can actually have this bias of egocentricity really explode into paranoia, um, for instance, of thinking that everybody's out to get you when in reality no one really gives a fuck. Right. Uh, <laughs> a lot Spotlight of the, effect is probably spot, part of I was this. about to say, Tom yeah. Gilovich uh, here from Cornell and the spotlight effect, you really, you know, this is where he had people wear Barry Manilow t-shirts yeah. um, and estimate how many people saw them in a classroom and they think you, they think like everybody everybody was clearly looking but really no one gives a fuck about your shit you know it's focused on you <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, one, no one cares that much about you the best example of that is when i wear my very bad wizards t-shirt and and i imagine in people's minds like a they've heard of the podcast b <laughs> that they're judging me for wearing the shirt like, right. like who does he that's kind of lame or who does he think <laughs> yeah and, we had and none of those things yeah like no one gives a fuck like like really <laughs> you think that people both know what the podcast is and know that you're a host yeah. when you wear it <laughs> all right so what the second category of bias is benefit benefactance yeah uh which is a term that he coins um, which is an intent in, intended not one that's caught on. It's not one we we got to say of the of the things that lasted. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a compound of beneficence, achieving desirable outcomes, and effectance, motivation to act competently. My favorite example of this is under a section that he talks about informal observations. So basically, this is a, a bias where you see yourself as causally responsible for good things. Um, that you're competent to achieve, to have control over, to achieve good things. But when the bad thing happens, you sort of like, you're like, oh, well, that was just chance. So he has, yeah, he has, again, in, in very sort of big picture thinking, he has a section on informal observations. And I love this example. An automobile driving benefactance takes the form of reluctance to acknowledge responsibility for various mishaps. The following quotations from a collection of drivers' explanations of accidents to police give some amusing illustrations. 
quote, as I approached the intersection, a sign suddenly appeared in a place where stop sign had never appeared before. (laughs) I was unable to stop in time to avoid an accident. The other one is the telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it it struck my front end. Like the telephone, <laughs> the telephone pole took a few hops and a skip, and uh, and right. That's hilarious. And it's such a common observation when people just you know someone someone cuts you off and you yell at them like fucking assholes, right? Even <laughs> but when you, you cut, and this is of course what totalitarian regimes do when uh, they will claim credit for every good thing that happens to the community, and if something undeniably tragic happens, they will say it was unavoidable, and right. that they did the best they could to, in spite of the horrible confluence of circumstances that that led to it. I mean, you can see this in in even though I guess we don't have a totalitarian government, just in the way political parties uh, take credit for, say, economic upturns. If it was, say, you're, you're a Democrat, you and the first four years of, of a Democrat's um, time in office, the economy goes up. You say, like, ah, see, we've really made change. And the Republican says, no, 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 that's just the lag from the last administration, right? <laughs> And then the the opposite is true, of course. Right. If the economy goes down, then you'll say, look what happens as soon as Obama takes office. Okay. Conservatism. This is also really interesting. And conservatism is is preserving what's already there. Right. So so a reluctance to change your views, even given factual information. This is this is really, really characteristic of scientific theories. Right. You, you have a theory. The theory. Yeah, no matter how much evidence that is contrary to it, you know. So we have this this rational rationalist view of how science works, the kind that you were taught, you know, in eighth grade science or whatever, where you have a hypothesis, <clears throat> then you you get the information and you evaluate whether it was consistent with your hypothesis and it, that was generated by your theory. And if it disconfirms, then you know there's reason to doubt doubt your hypothesis. But as <laughs> As is just so painfully obvious and we're we're really trying hard to fix it. This can lead you to just with the best of intentions, completely ignore um, all of the evidence that is accumulated that goes against your theory. Yeah. Um, because we just really don't want to take the time to to evaluate that evidence. We in the individual case, you know, there's cases of confirmation bias where you only see the things that um, will support your opinion, and you ignore the evidence that goes against it. I, I was accused of that in the Mister Robot episode. I had this. <laughs> oh, Paul Blue was so heated about this. Yeah, that I had this idea, and I don't think this will spoil anything because very few people agree with me. But that Tyrell is like a projection of uh, Elliot's dad, an alternate projection, and I would, I, I, you know, going back through the show, I, I, I like the show is just one big confirmation of that <laughs> yeah. original idea that I got, and, and you know, whenever there was something that went against it, I would either grudgingly admit it and say, but figure and, and assume that it could be explained away or not see it. <laughs> right. And like literally not seeing it. Right. So you don't have to attribute ill intent to know that this is just the way the, that you just have to know that this is the way the mind works. You're just way more likely to pay attention. And there's a, actually a, an interesting set of of what at first glance seemed to be contrary findings there's all there's all this work showing that you are 
selectively avoid information that goes against your view. Um, um, But then there's a bunch of evidence that that when you're processing information that goes against your view, that you actually think harder about it. If you're Um, forced to process it in a certain way. Yeah. And so that really if if we'd rather not read something that goes against our views, but once I force you to read it. Then and make a case yourself. Right? Yeah, one. Then the wheels start kicking in, and you start coming up with way more reasons. At, uh, you know, you think really hard about it. So you you actually think harder about it if you're forced to read something that goes against your views. Like, but then there's the different kind of bias, like which she calls the rapid aging of new opinions, where or and also the note knew it all along effect. If for some reason you are convinced of a new view, then you're more likely to think, well, I always thought that exactly and uh, you know and i like that idea of the rapid aging of new opinions you have this new opinion and all of a sudden it's an opinion you've had for a long time yep again this this has nice analogs with totalitarian he quotes orwell talking about this the party member tolerates present day conditions partly because he has no standards of comparison he must be cut off from the past because it is necessary for him to believe that he is better off than his ancestors and that the average level of material comfort is constantly rising so you you're always going to think right now that you are the best off that i you know you either knew it all along or you're going to force yourself to believe that you that your current condition is the best condition against all evidence right but the thing that it can't tolerate is this idea that you were wrong they were wrong the totalitarian government was wrong about a certain fact or a certain uh, way that the world was going to proceed so there's actually some um, experiments that I really love that come from um, Linda Levine, who's at UC Irvine, and I worked with a little bit. Um, she's a memory research researcher. Uh, she does memory and emotion, and she has this really nice finding that um, that you misremember your emotional reactions in a large part based on how you feel about that event now. So let's talk about what what the function of all these biases are at at every level of analysis that he talks about the the political, the scientific, and the individual self. So let me read a couple of quotes about knowledge organization and totalitarian society that are that are relevant. So he says right. this is from uh, 1984. The reason for the readjustment of the past is. You're in the way again, David. David. <laughs> what a great uh, example of the totalitarian ego. Yeah, the totalitarian ego. I, I blamed David's Skype box for being in the way of me reading this thing. And it, it was really sincere. Like You, you were just like, kind of angry at, my, at me get, for get like... Get out of the put- fucking way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's not my fault for not being able to operate my own computer. The reason for the readjustment of the past is the need to safeguard the infallibility of the party. No change of doctrine or in political alignment can ever be admitted. For to change one's mind or even one's policy is a confession of weakness. And then yeah. another one, the control of the past depends Above all, on the training of memory, it is necessary to remember that events happened in the desired manner, and if it is necessary to rearrange one's memories or to tamper with written 
records, then it is necessary to forget that one has done so. The trick of doing this can be learned like any other mental technique. It is called doublethink. This is Orwell again. What a great quote. It's just so great. And he really could be talking about this, you know, these yeah. cognitive biases, you, you could see for the from the totalitarian government, if you're going to convince people that 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 this single ideology provides all the answers, then you're going to have to do a lot of rewriting of history. And you're going to have to convince people that they're better off than they are. But what about in the, the individual level? He explicitly says, like, when people talk about this, they often say, well, it's just it's a motivational bias. Like, well, I I just want to believe I'm good. But he points out that this isn't real. This is not an explanation. This is just it's just saying what the findings are. So he thinks that this this kind of organization is helpful because he uses the analogy to a library where it's useful to have information organized in a way that's easy to access and use and this kind of organization just it, it's it's handy believing a, a bunch of things that are inconsistent um, makes the m- makes the search for for information sloppy so it is a way of b- being able to better access the information that's relevant <laughs> to your life yeah yeah I, uh, intrapsychically, I think that's the way to see it. Remembering things that are self-relevant um, is a really useful thing. Like remembering objective events. We know this now, decades of research on memory. Um, we're super biased in our memory and there are all sources of this bias, all sorts of sources of this bias, but they all kind of make sense if you view if you view the human mind as just trying to keep a consistent a consistent image or set of pieces of information about itself. Um, Why would the human mind want to keep a set of consistent? Why would the information about the self need to be consistent? Um, What's the function of that? Why would we be set up? Ready access to information that you, that you ought to act upon that, that this organization provides you the library metaphor. Again, if the cards were all out of order, then it would be much harder to find the information you need to to act upon. Um, but if the cards are misleading, as in the case of these biases, like it it points you to books that aren't actually there, right? Then that would be less. It, less w- useful, it would be right? less useful. I I I think reading between the lines and maybe actually just knowing what people have said after this. That it is a trade-off, right? That there definitely is a reason for accuracy. Um, but this is the easiest way to organize. Right. That's even in the paper, right? I think so, yeah. You know, and, and he uses the science, the science analogy as well. At a cer- after a certain point, like dogmatically sticking to a theory is going to be harmful. Mm-hmm. Um so you you want to have some sort of mechanisms in place that will allow that paradigm to shift, but it's still it's it's important to be able to not give up on a theory too easily, right? And right. that's what our biases allow us to do. There's, and I guess yeah. And then this is in this case of the individual would be like a theory of of the self. Mm-hmm. 
there's a saying in in science that th- theories change one funeral at a time right um and there there's no good analogy for that intrapsychically well maybe it is maybe there's some sort of self conception that you have of yourself that has to die me being a a novelist yeah like i could i could fit a lot into it <laughs> but at a certain point i had to put that to rest i take your work as fiction <laughs> i don't i don't think you've failed that's right so sometimes you just cannot can no longer you know you can you can consider that some cases are like an intervention for a drug addict right where yeah. some where you're just confronted clearly with with information that you can no longer ignore um but but the ease with which these biases give you information that is only in your favor is a really hard it's an uphill battle to get objective information about yourself so here's a i think a paragraph that seems important um he says to return to lakatos's observation that egocentricity and conservatism conservatism biases may provide a protective belt that preserves the hardcore belief that all of one's memory is the interrelated experience of a single entity, the one called myself. The protection of this belief may be a very important matter indeed. Its breakdown is considered to be a pathological condition when it occurs in the form of multiple personality, amnesia, fugue, or depersonalization. So you have to think about the alternatives so even though the biases are work, they'll give you some false information. At the very least, they're preserving this core self uh, yeah. conception that if you don't have that, you're it's anything goes. You, you've you've lost. You're you know you're Elliot. You know you're somebody who doesn't know who they are and what they're about and doesn't know what to expect from themselves. And it's chaos. And you know so similarly in science, if you don't have some sort of organizing theories then you have no idea what to expect out of the world. You have no idea what you, what you can trust. Sort of like social psychology right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even argue. Um, No, absolutely. And so, so when you think about, um, you know, this, I love this paragraph because it, it ties in the notion of identity into, to this, right? It's, so the analogy on the political level for the self, I think, is the ideology of the regime, right? It's like yeah. everything has to fit. You know, you, you consider Marxism with its its description of how history works. You yeah. have to force actual history into that ideology or else it's all it'll chaos. Crumble. It'll, it'll crumble. It'll crumble. Right? It'll, yeah. it'll crumble. The whole, the whole actually- system crumbles. This is where it makes sense to um, talk about what Mazreen emailed, Mazreen Banaji. I, yeah. I, because I know her, I had emailed her originally to get some thoughts. And she says, uh, the totalitarian ego was published in 1980 just as I arrived to work with Tony in the fall of 1980. It had tremendous impact on me, perhaps not for the best reasons. It was the first thing of his I read that I actually understood. Also, I had just left a deeply Marxist university actually was fleeing from it. So this piece was cathartic. Yeah. All right. By the way, like we should, I mean, we'll post a link to this. When she says it's the first thing of his that I understood, it's a very accessible paper. I mean, it's exceptionally well written in ways that you often don't see from psychologists sometimes, you know. Um, Right. Just the synthesis in this paper is, is amazing. And, and I think, 
when she says it was the first thing of his that I actually understood, that says something about like she was in a Marxist program, which which is just to say at least she had not been trained scientifically. Um, And so so her ability to understand this stuff and make sense of it, I think, is a characteristic of the papers, the, the papers accessibility to all all sorts of people. So, yeah, there's a there has to be a balance between objective information and accuracy and all of these biases. But I think that after this paper, maybe it just became clear that there are so many of these biases that there has to be really an advantage. It really used to be in social psychology, um, the older views of of how we make attributions, for instance, the belief was that we are like naive scientists. We're like lay scientists. We're taking into account, say, I want to know what kind of person you are, Tamler. So I'm sort of keeping track of all of the behaviors that you emit. And I am sort of making this measurement about, okay, when you did something that was bad, was it because of the situational forces that were around you? Or do you tend to make bad, do bad things no matter where you are? Um, I have just a rotten character. Exactly. And so so a lot of early social psychology was built on this assumption that what we're doing basically is statistics on other people. Yeah. um, And that we're doing so in a pretty rational sense. But what came out of that tradition was an increasing understanding that that no people weren't objective in in the way that we paid attention to especially our our own behavior but the behavior of others like the fundamental attribution error and all that stuff came af- after we realized like we're pretty much not well in some sense we are like scientists right exactly <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Uh, um, but 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 our goal is to tell ourselves a story that makes sense Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we really looked at the facts, the story wouldn't make any kind of sense. It w- we wouldn't have any kind of coherent picture of behavior. This liability, this is a quote, this liability may be more than balanced by the asset of allowing the cognitive system to allocate its resources to storage and retrieval of information rather than continual revision of its indexing or coding scheme. Right. And thereby permitting access to a large amount of information within a single So system. the idea with the library where he says, let's say this new better, more accurate library organizational system comes along, you're not going to want to just overhaul your current system. What are those things? The Dewey Decimal or whatever. Like You're not going to want to overhaul it, even if the new one would give a slightly more accurate picture. It's just A, too much work. There is some motivation to just keep the system that you have in place right now. And that that goes very well with the scientific case where, and you know, I think philosophy too, so much of this can apply to philosophical theory construction. In this case now, you're trying to preserve your theory and you'll act, and, and a lot of times theories are just matching intuitions about particular cases or something like that. And you have a general principle that can account for your intuitions about particular cases. All of a sudden, someone will come up with a counterexample or a set of counterexamples, and you'll find those them less intuitive if they don't fit with your theory. You know, you'll right. you'll preserve your theory. You'll a lot of what I complain about of, in philosophy is trying to make a theory, a simple theory, out of something that's much messier and more complex. But there's some value to that. Yeah. I, I don't know if the works as well in philosophy, though. But maybe it does. I have to think of it. There's no actual uh, evidence. <laughs> no, 
Right, exactly. <laughs> to update, there's no updating. There's no yeah. actual value of the whole project to be. I'm trying to think of a of a of an example where, I mean, you're going to hate this, but I was trying to think of an example of where where people really had to shift their philosophical, like as a field, whether there's been a paradigm shift that was due to, and all I can think of is how people thought of epistemology after your <laughs> cases. <laughs> I mean, that's an example of something that just never should have gotten started in the first place. But here's an example, like with Singer took it upon himself to believe, to shift from a human conception, which would be too subjective for what he wanted, to this kind of parfait concept, object, objectivism about an objective foundation for his utilitarian, very strong utilitarian beliefs. And Peter Singer is a brilliant guy. And yeah. he makes there are certain leaps that he makes that are, in a way, not they they, they stand out in his work as how how can you really believe that you know? But the point is, it, it like he can believe it because it allows him to put forth this massive theory which has led to the the effective altruism movement and which has changed the course of like human history in a lot of ways. I mean, he's one of the philosophers that really can lay claim to have done that with animal yeah. welfare and with with the way people regard their philanthropic obligations. And if you have to make a few unjustified metaethical assumptions like maybe that's not the biggest deal in the whole world. It's it's akin to the footnote Dear reader, please don't worry about this. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> just, 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 this is not the objection you're looking for. Trust me. <laughs> uh, you know, like the there is an objective foundation for the impartiality. For the, you know. Right, right, yeah. And I assume that a lot more work gets done because of theories. And even though they have this protective blanket around them, you know, um, I, I like to think that that although they're resistant to change, some of that resistance to change isn't unreasonable. I always tell students, you know, science, it's when, a eighth, when an eighth grader or ninth grader is, takes chemistry for this first time and they, they don't replicate something that we all know to be true, you, you don't call the press, you know, and say, like, with this confirmation, this confirmation. Uh, but this gets us to, I think, a, an important question, which is, is you know, I— Greenwald is doing a good job of making the case that that the system kind of needs this, right? There's no need to to think of these biases as just a source of evil or ma- bad intentions or you know the part of the metaphor that he's not carrying is is you know that totalitarians are assholes. Um it's it's simply that this is a, an efficient way to store information. But but you do have to accept that there are times when change has to come. And so I got myself to thinking a bit about wh- how do we facilitate that change so that we're not double thinking? What do we do both in science and and just as personal historians to make sure that we're not letting these biases get the best of us? And in, in science, at least, I think that we're, we're trying a lot right now um, with, for instance, open science where we're making making sure that we make our data available where that we're upfront about the analyses that we're going to do so that we can't p-hack the shit out of it. And um, so there are institutional structures that are being built to ensure that we're not too biased, 
that we don't fall prey to believing what what is wrong. But for the individual, it's a bit harder, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard even to get feedback about you being an asshole, right? Because we talked a little bit about this with Valerie, right? Like this reminds Aristotle, weirdly enough, had some thoughts on this. This was one of the reasons why he valued friendship so much is friends give you an opportunity to get a not unbiased, but maybe less biased yeah. account of your behavior and your motives, dad. And so a good friend can serve as a as a bit of a corrective, but not one that threatens to send you spinning into multiple personality. Exactly. And, and you know, and you're just likely to trust the friend knows you and has the only the best intentions for you. Whereas if I just, if I, if someone random tells me I'm an asshole, it may be true, but I certainly I'm going to dismiss it like right but but if a good friend tells me that I acted in an assholeish way like now I I have to listen yeah. and uh, yeah and you have to think about it and maybe and maybe you did and I think this like a lot of relationships are like that I mean I see this yeah. like I'll start like yelling at Eliza for you know spilling something or like not paying attention because she's careless like I am and and you kind of find yourself like what are you doing you know but <laughs> but but you justify the the justification machinery just kicks in so hard that you yeah. really have to make this effort to overcome it to just like ch- chill chill out for a second and ask if your reaction is 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 really justified well uh, and you know yeah exactly you know what's freaky is when you see your, when you see that you're acting like your parents acted yeah right and you're like oh shit man i don't want to i do not want it to turn into the mistakes that my parents made yeah um yeah and i often find myself just trying to disarm uh, my daughter by admitting to her that that what she did I've done before. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah, right. And, and, and that, it's true, that, or at least it's I true. believe no, it's true. Yeah, you know, and that I've yeah. have had I've had to work against it. Yeah, but you don't have yeah. to be as careless and clumsy and stupid as I as, <laughs> as I am. As I what, still continue I, to be. Yeah, exactly. That's what I I'll say that all the time. Like I'm trying to stop. It's part of the justifying for me getting so mad about something that I do all the time. But like <laughs> you know, like it's it's like I I really don't want her to. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was reminded of the, in the thinking about the flaws of my family um, that I've had to work against in my own personality. <laughs> I swear that the one and only reason my dad is willing to pay for someone to come clean his house once a week yeah. is so that he can blame it on her when he loses something. <laughs> like, it just serves the the only function that serves for him was like the cleaning lady must have done something to it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like a universe. <laughs> that's the my dad would do that too. Like, there's no, there's nothing that once we had a cleaning person come, there was uh, her name was Rosa. There was nothing that he lost and that wrote that Rosa. <laughs> right, I'm like, you know, Rosa doesn't care about your toenail clipper. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Speaking of like universal, I, I so one of the I had a couple questions about this paper. One of them is how vulnerable some of these results and biases that he's talking 
about how vulnerable they are to objections like Joe Henrik, you know, weird style objections uh, that yeah. these biases because some of the biases, especially I guess the egocentricity ones, sound very much like the kind of biases you would expect in individualistic cultures, but maybe not as much in more collectivist cultures. Yeah, I, that, that's a good point. And um, I think that our understanding from – and there's just not enough work cross-culturally. But our understanding, for instance, of I know I know work on the fundamental attribution bias, right? The tendency to believe that others acted because mm-hmm. of their disposition. There, there's a great um, article – by Morris and Peng in, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, looking at uh, Chinese versus American attributions for um, the acts of a murder. Uh, so it was in both cases in China and in the U.S. There was a student who brought a gun to their academic defense committee meeting and um, and just like open, just shot at their profession it's not funny (laughs) um it actually freaks me out and what you find is i I think the understanding is that in collectivistic cultures these biases are more likely to be group centered rather than individual centered so the same biases exist um but in in both the positive and negative way you're likely to rewrite the information within with the level of analysis being your group rather than you as an individual the fundamental attribution error, yeah, I remember talking with Zimbardo about this. They they do it less in collectivist cultures when you're talking about the individual, at least. Right. And so in that sense, they are more accurate. Yes. They are. They are. They have a more accurate understanding of the in this particular context. They have a more accurate understanding of the causes of human behavior. But if what you're saying is right, that they transfer it then to the, to groups, the groups. I wonder how the uh, the the metaphor now gets you know even more complicated because there's the individual, there's the group, there's the totalitarian. You know. So yeah. Uh, this is definitely back in the day where it seems like a lot of these studies were on college students and totally. and, and yeah. you know and I think that it is it is a, a different way to be biased uh, you know there is a lot of focus on the self in obviously in the west um but I think it might just be similar mechanisms where you know you're you're paying attention to information that is pro your group um and that you can organize properly. And you can organize, right? So the organizational function might be the same. It's just on a different a different unit of, of analysis. The other question I had was, so there's, towards the end is the first time really any kind of evolutionary explanation comes into play. But it's more of an analogy than it is some sort of explanation at the evolutionary level yeah. to why these processes would be would have been adaptive. Right. I'm wondering you know for some of our evolutionary psychology listeners what, what would you know a hardcore evolutionary psychologist think about this paper? Yeah, I think that his discussion of of evolutionary mechanism was just an attempt to defeat the objection that a human organism couldn't be that way because objective evidence clearly is always better. Right. Um, it wasn't so much of a, a very strong defense of the view that these things did evolve. 
Um, and, and I think it's still a problem in the field where, I mean, certainly some of the biases can help self-esteem and aren't there, you know, there's some evolutionary advantage to having higher self-esteem than lower self-esteem, right? Yeah. You see that in primates and. Yeah. There's this view that what self-esteem is, is, is like a little, it's like a little barometer to how likely your group is to find you acceptable. And so we, we want to be viewed as accepted by the group because group living was so important. So when you're feeling shitty, it's because there's a real reason that you should, you should fear being ostracized by the rest of the group members, which would lead to death. I, you know, I, I don't think that, that this stuff necessarily requires an evolutionary explanation. There's no reason to think that all of these biases are, are, um, they have adaptive explanations. Yeah. Um, they might just be a byproduct of, of say, you know, you, you only have one perspective and maybe even just culturally bolstered, you want to see the, the self as important and good. And they might, some of them might be evolutionary adaptive, evolutionarily adaptive, and some of them just might be a result of the kind of learning um, that occurs. <laughs> There's actually this set of findings called depressive realism, that if yeah. you measure people's object, objective accuracy about their self abilities, um, that when they're depressed, they tend to be accurate. And the normal, the normal individual who's not yeah. currently feeling clinically depressed is actually like way off. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, I way overestimate my abilities at virtually everything. And I just carefully structure my my um, encounters in life so that nobody can disprove it. You know? The only thing I'm right about in my estimation of my abilities is the ability to interpret Mr. Robot. <laughs> <laughs> there i'm accurate or, or in fact maybe understating my yeah uh, paul was so livid even at this conference about yeah about how stupid it was that i thought that time travel could figure in and it was like a whole article about i know that. i told him yeah. you know what paul i didn't have a dog a, a dog in this fight but right now i'm so hoping just for the sake of my pride that time travel comes into play next season. He's like, but that would ruin the show. And I'm like, I'm willing to sacrifice the show, the show just, <laughs> just so that I the viewing I experience so. of 10 million people. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. It's all about me and what Paul thinks about me. <laughs> yeah. And he, I, I wanted to quickly say like what I was really interested in was, you know, again, this is a paper that I don't hear talked about that much. Um, Which is crazy. It It is crazy. Tony Greenwald, like I said, Mazarin did a little E introduction and he wrote right before the show and he said, I do still consider the totalitarian ego article to be one of my best efforts ever. And its conclusions have more been built upon, including by me and Mazarin, than refuted or superseded. Looking back on it, I also see that it was one of the steps. You would say that. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> being taken more by others than by me toward developing the ideas of implicit social cognition. At least he thinks highly of it. I, I'm I'm curious as to whether he thought that it was influential um, in the field. I, I think it, it definitely was. In 1980, to have such a synthesis of the work on bias, you know, we now consider our field, we often call it social cognition. And it's like social psychology brought together with cognitive psychology. And you can see here that before that was ever a thing, it was present 
in this article that was like yeah. synthesizing multiple strands of evidence from very different, you know, the study of memory is its own thing. Um, yeah. and, um, and bringing this all together was, it was a really, this know. is a great example of the downside of hyper specialization too. I mean, talk about so many different areas in the sciences, cognitive sciences, social, uh, social science, but then all, and then, you know, like the political science, he, I mean, he doesn't claim to, that this is original thought, but he helps himself to, to, you know, with his quotations from Arendt and Orwell to, uh, uh a theory of totalitarian, uh, regimes and like and, and then also like the Kuhnian philosophy of science like it's just everything in yeah. one paper and I it is one of those things where I wish this was attempted more often although probably it's very hard to pull off yeah I was gonna say my fear is that that um, a paper like this just wouldn't wouldn't get accepted or even be good you know yeah like, I'm trying to think of uh, of any other sort of grand sweeping papers with a metaphor and the, is the, the emotional heights, dog yeah, and his rational tale that's like what maybe. i think is a, is yeah. the the best example in recent years of a of a big of a big claim um driven by this sort of central metaphor um that unifies research from from all sorts of different areas but it's still not as big as this no, yeah. right. It's it's very focused on social psychology, mm -hmm. and, you know, the uh, uh, sentimentalism versus rationalism debate. And there's a lot of interesting philosophy in there, but he doesn't take a stand on it. Um, yeah. And I, I think that this is a tighter paper in the sense that that um, he's he's really bringing together specific studies from different fields and unifying them in a way that that feels it feels like he was recognizing something yeah um in synthesis not in a way that that does not seem like he's selectively reporting the research that that uh he, you know there's actually a great little footnote um oh not not a footnote a parenthetical where is it where he's talking about the tendency of scientists to only report evidence that's consistent with their theory and in parentheses he puts caveat lector right yeah. <laughs> just so you know i might be doing that <laughs> just to gush a couple a little more like and also to encourage people to read this paper it's so seamless the way it, you know the way it integrates the totalitarian uh, stuff, the philosophy of science stuff, and the and the you know the cognitive biases on the self. The way that's done is ma it's a masterful, and I you know it's almost deceptively easy the way the way it all comes together. I imagine that's got to be that's so hard, and 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 also like it's not just cool that he's that it's so sweeping, but it's actually helpful to understand the co you know at the level of the individual to have the metaphor of the totalitarian idea. Ideology. It's like a really helpful metaphor uh, as a way of, you know, further illuminating the the theory of the self that he's describing. So it's just yeah, no, it's it's, it's, it's a great example of of a metaphor that helps that that does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to, you know, it it provides this template for which you can understand all of this stuff, and and it gives you more information in just the use of the metaphor than you would otherwise have from just reading all of the findings themselves. 
Um, and yeah, I think Mazarin said, you know, that the way he weaves, weaves this together with the quotes yeah. from, it's just, it's just really well done and, and hard. It's hard, but it's not, it doesn't read hard. No. It reads so easy. Yeah. It reads it's effortless the way it's, ha- it's done, but yeah, no, this is a, this is a model. Speaking of yeah. models. How about that, Giselle? No, uh, <laughs> Robert Frank, my personal model for how to write a book, um, Passions Within Reasons, one of my favorite books. He emailed us, said he'd listen to our our podcast. The same day we posted, the, the which was just like, it. What, a, what a good guy. Bob Frank, that's the, that, that, that was, you know, that was a bucket list email. To yeah, get. yeah. He's, he's a great guy. We're, we're going to have him on the show yeah. when his new book comes out. All right, let's wrap this up. Okay, well, yeah, good job. I think we've done two good. We we've have had two good yeah. papers. So you know, it wouldn't be bad to have a up. paper that we seriously disappointed in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know because we're now we're just fanboys. Yeah, I know. Like, oh, it's, it's so cool the way <laughs> Berlin. Like... <laughs> uh, we need to offend some people. You'll pick. The- All right. Well, I'll do my best to pick something that we can be a little more. Well, I don't know if we want to be critical. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. maybe. All right. Later. Or right, wait. Join us next time. I'm very paid with